Philippians chapter 4, we begin in verse 1. This is the word of God. Let us hear it. Paul writes, Therefore, my brethren, dearly beloved, and longed for, my joy and crowned, so stand fast in the Lord, my dearly beloved. I beseech you, Odeus, and beseech Syntyche, that they be of the same mind in the Lord. And I entreat thee also, true yoke fellow, help those women which labored with me in the gospel, with Clement also, and with other my fellow laborers, whose names are in the book of life. Rejoice in the Lord always, and again I say rejoice. Let your moderation be made known unto all men. The Lord is at hand. Be careful for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known unto God. And the peace of God, which passeth all understanding, shall keep your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. Finally, brethren, whatsoever things are true, whatsoever things are honest, whatsoever things are just, whatsoever things are pure, whatsoever things are lovely, whatsoever things are of good report, if there be any virtue and if there be any praise, think on these things those things which ye have both learned and received and heard and seen in me do, and the God of peace shall be with you. Amen. We'll end our reading in verse 9. We know the Lord will add his blessing to the reading of his word for his name's sake. I didn't focus on it last week, but I know I did make mention of it, especially in connection with what we've been doing in our morning services as we are focusing on a theme of bridging the gap between hearing and doing. And you will uh, find me giving you this reminder every time I come across a verse that seems to emphasize it. And the ninth verse certainly does that. Those things which ye have both learned and received and heard and seen in me do. And the God of peace shall be with you. So there you go, hearing and doing God's Word. Now, you'll recall that last week we commenced a study on verse 8. Let me take the time to read that verse again. Finally, brethren, whatsoever things are true, whatsoever things are honest, whatsoever things are just, whatsoever things are pure, whatsoever things are lovely, whatsoever things are of good report, if there be any virtue and if there be any praise, think on these things. Laying emphasis especially on the thought process of the Christian. Think on these things. I pointed out in our last study that the Christian religion is designed to be a thinking religion. Our minds are to be engaged in the study of God's Word. That's not true of every religion. That's not true of every segment of Christianity. There are some aspects of Christianity, some sects, if you could even call them Christian, and the Roman Catholic Church comes foremost to mind, where they would just assume you render blind obedience rather than thoughtful submission. Well, the Protestant Reformation certainly 
set Christians free from that. And we are to be engaged with our minds in our walk with the Lord, okay? I, I know that the word meditation, I, I think of my own experience uh, as a young man before the Lord saved me. This goes back to the 70s, and if you were to even utter that word meditation, the thing that would come to mind would be the Eastern mystical religions, transcendental meditation. I can still recall as an unsaved sinner just being struck by a man, uh, a long-haired man that was sitting on a gym floor before an audience that filled the bleachers. He's sitting on the floor with his legs crossed, his arms are outstretched, and he's mumbling out things that absolutely make no sense at all that I could tell, but he sure looked peaceful and tranquil, and my thought was, yeah, I would like to be like that. It had a certain appeal. Well, the Lord, by his grace, saved me. That kind of activity became uh, taken totally out of the picture of my mind and my activities. And yet, I have to fall back on the fact that meditation is a valid Christian practice. I cited for you a book by Joel Beakey, uh, a book entitled Puritan Reformed Spirituality in which he includes a chapter that is devoted to the practice of meditation. And I read to you some of the headings in that chapter. Let me read uh, them to you again. He covers such things as the definition of meditation, the nature and kinds of meditation, the duty and necessity of meditation, the manner of meditation, the subjects for meditation, uh, the benefits to meditation, as well as the obstacles to meditation. Very thorough treatment that Dr. Beakey presents, drawing from the Puritans, certainly making the case that it was a practice that they were very familiar with, one that we ought to be familiar with as well in our Christian walk. Now, in our last study, I only covered uh, the first point, which has to do with the Christian life being transformed by the Christian being engaged in thinking. Okay, if our lives are going to be transformed by thinking, that kind of presupposes that we have to be thinking, doesn't it? That we are not to be thoughtless Christians. And we come now to consider my, my next point, okay? And that is that the Christian life is transformed not just by any kind of thinking. The Christian life is to be transformed by guided thinking. We need to be guided in our thoughts, and this is what Paul really is elaborating in this eighth verse in Philippians 4. Finally, brethren, whatsoever things are true, whatsoever things are honest, whatsoever things are just, whatsoever things are pure, whatsoever things are lovely, whatsoever things uh, are of good report, if there be any virtue and if there be any praise, think on these things. One of the things that is striking in this verse is the vastness 
of Christian thinking. The word whatsoever is the recurring word. It's always tempting when you read this just to skip that word, but you dare not. That word is repeated and repeated again and again, and what it indicates is that Paul is placing a strong emphasis on it. Whatsoever things are true, whatsoever things are honest, and so on. And it becomes evident, doesn't it, that there is a vastness then to the things that the Christian can contemplate. I like the words of a preacher from the 19th century who describes this vastness, this whatsoever. Listen to what he says. Whatsoever things are honest. The word does not exactly mean what we call honest, but what is worthy of honor, what is revered, venerable, majestic, Think on whatever things you can look up to in persons, circumstances, and respect, especially in social life, in the political world, in literature. Where there is no room for reverence or respect, there is no room for life. The name of God, the idea of worship, the solemnity of life, the immortality of the soul, the fact of death, the judgment seat, Think on these things, awful, venerable things. Then, government, law, the state, the church, the ruling powers and influences of society, the magistrate, holding not the sword in vain, the minister of God to thee for good. Think on these things. Pray for them. Check faction. Uphold authority nor are the grand advances of science to be omitted from this catalog. For these we are to bless God. I might pause here long enough just to say that we got something of a dose of that in our young people's fellowship on Friday. People coming up with the strangest names of these creatures, and there was Caleb with his phone to Google them and find out they really did exist. Um, that's okay. That's a good line of things to be thinking about. God's hand is in all of this. The astronomical accuracy that can calculate the moment of an eclipse a hundred years hence. How about the power of expediting communication like lightning to the ends of the earth, the triumph over winds and waves, the mighty faculty of the poet, the genius of history, the gift of eloquence, the prevention of disease, the alleviation of pain, the rise up and walk of medical skill. These two, together with the awful and majestic in nature and art, Whatsoever in mountain or sea or sky, whatsoever in painting or noble structure, shows greatness of purpose, nobility of soul, and tends to bow our souls in admiration. Think on these things. Well, I think we could analyze Paul's statement under a few broad headings. We are, of course, to think of Christ some would be happy to restrict Paul's application to that and nothing more. And I won't deny for a moment that our thinking should include much of Christ 
and that our thinking should lead us to Christ. He is, after all, true. Indeed, he is the way, the truth, and the life. And he is honest or honorable. He alone is just and pure, sinlessly perfect and positively holy. He is absolutely lovely, the fairest of 10,000, the rose of Sharon and the lily of the valleys. And we certainly have good reports of him, don't we, in the Gospels and in the lives of those who know him and love him. So we're to think of Christ and we're to think of the things that are closely associated to Christ. Think on the truths of the gospel and salvation. Think on the promises of God and his covenant faithfulness. Think on the way your salvation satisfies God's justice and promotes purity in the lives of Christ's followers. Think on the time you gained a saving interest in Christ. Remember the time that you went from being at enmity with him to finding him altogether lovely. There is certainly a vastness to the things that the Christian can think upon in relation to Christ. There are, of course, other spiritual things that you should think on. Instead of dwelling on all that is wrong, you might think about uh, all that is wrong in the world. You might think upon the world that is to come. Thank God there is coming a new heaven and a new earth wherein will dwell righteousness. I find myself going in that direction more and more, especially the more I'm exposed to all that's gloom and doom in this world. There's a better world to come. Oh, hasten the day. Even so, come, Lord Jesus. Can you even begin to fathom what that world will be like? We hardly know how to describe it, except in terms of what it won't be. And we describe it that way by contrasting it to what's in the world now. One of the thoughts that strikes me about that time, and I refer now to what I often call my favorite catechism question and answer, that tells us that we will be openly acknowledged and acquitted in the day of judgment and made perfectly blessed in the full enjoying of God forever. Does not the very thought of it just uh, impact your soul in such a way as to heave a sigh in anxious anticipation of it? Perfectly blessed in the full enjoying of God openly acknowledged and acquitted in the day of judgment. Can that be? Well, if the gospel is true, it certainly can be and is. No more distractions, no more defilement, no more weakness that springs from our infirmities, no more profanity or lewdness or strife or sinful hatred. No more self-seeking or political corruption or abominable practices or murder or stealing, but instead there will be the adding of our voices to the choir that sings, Worthy is the Lamb that was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing. All oh, our voices will be included in that angelic choir and will be engaged in it with all our hearts. 
Do you not find such thoughts to be true and honest and just and pure and lovely? Thinking on spiritual things, of course, does not mean that we have to become so heavenly-minded that we're no earthly good. So we do well to think on the things we can do in this world to promote heaven on earth. We are, after all, taught to pray that the Lord's will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We do well to promote righteousness, fight against sin. We do well to pray for those in office that do represent values that are true and honest and just and pure. And we do well to think on the relationships we are blessed with as members of the family of God. Husbands, think upon your wives. Aren't they lovely to you? Aren't they patient with you? Aren't they honorable and don't they receive good reports from their children when their children rise up to call them blessed? And think on your children. They're gifts from God. And if you have no children and you have no spouse, then think on the fact that God has not left you without a family. You are among the Lord's people, and they are your family, and there's a sense in which you are even more intimately married to Christ. Paul, you know, interestingly enough, spoke on the subject of marriage as a distraction. Can you imagine that? 1 Corinthians 7, verse 32. But I would have you without carefulness. He that is unmarried carries, not careth for the things that belong to the Lord, how he may please the Lord. But he that is married carries, uh, careth for the things that are of the world, how he may please his wife. Some of you are not hindered by that distraction and have the liberty, therefore, to devote yourselves all the more to Christ. Well, the point I'm trying to stress in all that I've been saying up to this point is that there is a vastness to the things that the Christian can contemplate. Whatsoever things are true, whatsoever things are honest, whatsoever things are just, whatsoever things are pure, whatsoever things are lovely, whatsoever things are of good report, if there be any virtue and if there be any praise, Think on these things. Be sure, in other words, that you are guided in your thinking to the things that are spiritual and filter all your thinking through the person and work of Jesus Christ. How then is the Christian transformed by his thinking? Well, he obviously has to be thinking if he's going to be transformed by his thinking but he must be sure that he's guided in his thinking or that he's disciplined, you could argue, in his thinking so that he is occupied with thoughts of Christ, thoughts of the gospel of Christ, thoughts of the kingdom of Christ, thoughts of the bride of Christ, thoughts of the people of Christ. One more aspect to the text then, that we must consider if the Christian's going to be transformed by his thinking, he must not only be guided in his thinking, but he must be guarded in his thinking. Guided and guarded in his thinking. 
just as certainly as Paul states positively the kinds of things the Christian is to think upon, he, by implication, shows the kinds of things the Christian must guard his mind against. Simply put, the Christian must guard his mind from thoughts that are not based on truth and are dishonorable and are sinful and impure. Pornography and the things that lead in that direction must not be allowed in the Christian's mind. Oh, I hope you know that. I hope you're convinced of that. When we bring men before the examination committee in our presbytery, it's one of the questions we put to them very frankly. You have trouble with pornography? You'd be surprised at the answers we receive. Thankfully, well, I mean, anybody we admit uh, would have had to have given a favorable answer, but in many of the answers that we receive, there is at least an admission of exposure to it which emphasizes, doesn't it, the need to guard our minds. What this means, of course, is that the Christian must watch or he must be vigilant concerning what he allows his eyes to see on the Internet or on television or in magazines. We know, of course, that in our culture today, we're bombarded with things that are impure and sinful. I suppose there's a sense in which you have to say you can't escape it. They attack you from everywhere. They attack you through billboards on the highway or through magazines on the rack in the checkout line of the grocery store. Used to love what my wife did with those things. You could always tell when we'd been through a grocery line, all the magazines were turned around backwards. Of course, I don't know if the backs were much better, but be that as it may. Even when you manage to find something on television that may be wholesome to watch, you have to be on guard with the commercials. Immodesty is the rule of the day. Now, you know in your experience that when it comes to the mind, you can be an active creator of thoughts, and you can also be a passive recipient of thoughts. Thoughts can arise from within that spring from your carnal nature or may be planted by the devil. And when wrong thoughts arise from within, they must be taken in hand and dismissed and replaced with things that are wholesome. In this sense, right thinking and wholesome thinking becomes a discipline. You know that when it comes to bodily exercise, when your body works out, that discipline is required. It takes effort and consistency and perseverance when it comes to bodily exercise. Same thing applies to mental exercise, you know. I remember a professor from my college days who used to lament what he referred to as the mental laziness of so many Christians. You need to make your minds sweat, he used to say. And what that means simply is that it takes a concerted effort 
to check wrong thinking and to engage in right and wholesome thinking. So when you find your mind filled with foreboding thoughts or with impure thoughts or with vain thoughts, you must not simply tolerate them. You must take the manner in hand and call on the Holy Spirit to empower you to bring every thought into obedience to Christ. I know I've referenced this before. I'll do it again, his book on spiritual depression. Martin Lloyd-Jones points out how the psalmist does this, takes his thoughts into hand with regard to discouraging thoughts. Psalm 42 and verse 5, the psalmist asks himself, Why art thou cast down, O my soul, and why art thou disquieted in me? You see what he's doing? Who's he talking to? He's talking to himself. He's preaching to himself. Why art thou cast down, O my soul? Why art thou disquieted in me? So must we likewise preach to ourselves when we find our thought lives being crowded by discouraging thoughts or sinful thoughts or impure thoughts. Why art thou cast down, O my soul? Or why art thou harboring sin, O my soul? Or, why art thou engaged in the pursuit of vain glory, O my soul, by catering to pride and self-righteousness? But next comes the positive message that he preaches to himself. Why art thou cast down, O my soul, and why art thou disquieted in me? Hope thou in God, for I shall yet praise him for the help of his countenance. Forboding thoughts and impure thoughts and sinful thoughts are, of course, inevitable given the Christian's sinful nature. But that doesn't mean he should accept them or tolerate them. It means instead that he should plead the blood of Christ over them, seek the help of God for victory over them. It also means that he should do all in his power to protect himself from feeding his mind on things that will contribute to impure thinking. I'm afraid that too many Christians don't take the matter to heart because they think that feeding on things that are untrue and dishonorable and unjust and impure will not bear any serious consequences. The whole thing, after all, is just in my imagination. Who can be hurt by that? Oh, remember the verse I cited at the very beginning of the study, Proverbs 23 and verses 6 and 7 where the wise man says, Eat thou not the bread of him that hath an evil eye, neither desire thou his dainty meats, for as he thinketh in his heart, so is he. Boy, what you think is very telling about what you are. We do become what we think, which means that the potential for transformation is present with us, but also the potential for defilement and sin and hypocrisy is also present with us. Thank God this afternoon that the blood of Christ cleanseth us from all sin, including the sins of the mind. 
Let's realize then that our minds are a battlefield. Dr. Cairns used to stress that regularly. The spiritual battle we find ourselves engaged in are fought more often than not in the mind of the Christian. That's the battlefield. The Christian must be engaged in the right kind of thinking. You will be engaged in some form of thinking. The real question is really not whether or not you will think, but how will you think? You must be engaged in thinking, but your thinking must be guided thinking, and it must therefore be guarded thinking. May the Lord empower you, therefore, to heed his word so that you'll be found dwelling on whatsoever things are true, whatsoever things are honest, whatsoever things are just, whatsoever things are pure, whatsoever things are lovely, and whatsoever things are of good report, if there be any virtue, and if there be any praise, think on these things. Oh, may the Lord give us victory in our minds, which will be reflected in our words and in our deeds and in our countenances. Let's close then in prayer. Let's all pray. Oh, Lord, as we bow in thy presence now and bring this meeting to a close, we do pray for the needed grace and the needed help to be mindful of the way we think. May we be engaged in right thinking. May we guard ourselves against wrong and unjust and impure thinking. May we in thy power, and oh Lord, it must be in thy power, may we in that power Bring every thought into captivity to the obedience of Christ. For we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.